Well, hello and welcome to SBC Online Sunday, the 27th of September. You're very welcome and I hope you find uh, this uh, online meeting a real blessing. I've been having a look at the data we get on YouTube for when people tune into the services. Uh, most weeks there are over 50 contacts at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. Assuming uh, many contacts are more than one person, this means that the numbers watching must be very similar to that uh, that join a normal service at SBC. It seems either people view a second time or other new people view, as by the end of the week the uh, viewing count is between 70 and 80 people. Uh, people go on viewing and uh, we're at over uh, 90 to 100 views uh, a few weeks later. So God's word is growing out and that's something to be very thankful for. But my primary thought at the start of uh, this meeting is this, that uh, most of the fellowship are all online at the same time. So most of us are together right now. So this morning, after we've uh, sung the final song, I've written a prayer, a short prayer, which will appear on the screen. And it would be good, it would be great, if one person in each household, one person uh, where this has been watched, could read the prayer out loud. Then although physically we are separated, we'll be unified at the same time in the words of the same prayer. So watch out for that at the end of this session. Question, who would you most like to meet? If ever you have a, a dinner party and you're all sitting around the table, it's a, a good question. It's a, a kind of an after dinner game uh, to pep up conversation. Who would you most like to meet? Past, present, dead, alive, famous, infamous, not famous, biblical, non-biblical. I suspect if you do a pointless style asking 100 people who they would most like to meet, then Jesus of Nazareth would be very high on the list. Well, over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at stories of people who had a life-changing meeting, a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And there are many such meetings uh, in the Gospels, one-to-one -one with Jesus. And through the different people Jesus met, I think we can conclude this, that Jesus is perfectly adapted to be the saviour of the world. He meets a religious man, Nicodemus. He meets a Samaritan woman. He meets the Gentile politician. Uh, those three meetings all recorded in chapters three and four of John's gospel. And he changes their lives. The religious, the immoral, the self-righteous, normal everyday folk from different walks of life and different backgrounds, different social strata, they all need a savior. Jesus is reaching out and available to all, to insiders, to outsiders, to the respectable people, to the not respectable people, to male, to female, to Jew, to Gentile, to slave, to free, to rich, to poor, all can be saved by Jesus. No bias, no isms in Christianity. People from every tribe and every nation and every tongue and every skin colour around the throne. 
why are we looking at these encounters, these conversations, these meetings? Well, uh, through studying these uh, meetings, we will learn about ourselves. But probably more importantly, we will also learn about Jesus. Today, we're looking at the, account, the encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, probably uh, the most read section, or certainly one of the most read sections in the Bible. Looking forward to that. That's coming up later. Uh, that's after we've uh, sung a few songs, praised God together, enjoyed the all age section, read God's word, and prayed. So let's start uh, by briefly praying together. Father, we thank you again for your word and for our fellowship. Help us now from, where, from wherever we are watching the service to be united in our praise of you and in our thanksgiving to you. Bless us this morning in his name, our Saviour. Amen. Okay, I'll see you later. Now let's... Uh, I praise the name of the Lord our God. All praise to him. See you later. Good morning, everyone. Our reading this morning is from John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can either enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it is it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because
because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. The people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Aen near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one who testified about, look, he is baptizing every and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what it is what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens to him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. No one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Please have your Bibles open at uh, John uh, chapter 3. And before we look at this fantastic uh, passage of Scripture together, let's briefly pray. Father, we thank you that you are the great communicator. You are the God who speaks. And we pray now that by your spirit, you will speak to us as we look at your word. Father, help us to have attentive ears and hearts that are willing to listen to what you say to us. And help us to have the courage to live out in our lives what you would have us do. This we ask in his name and for his sake alone. Amen. So uh, the sermon today, we've got four headings and I am alliterating on the letter M. Firstly, we're going to be looking at the man. And by that, I mean the man Nicodemus. Secondly, we're going to be looking at the Messiah, um, looking at Jesus and a particular attribute, a divine attribute of Jesus. Thirdly, we're going to be looking at this meeting this meeting between Nicodemus and Jesus. And fourthly, 
we're going to be looking at the meaning. What is the application of this passage to us today? So, hopefully you've got that. The man, the Messiah, the meeting and the meaning. So firstly, the man. I think we can tell quite a lot of things about Nicodemus from this passage. Nicodemus, well, wow, Nicodemus. If Nicodemus was in the house, you'd know. He was an important guy. It says, it's said that the Queen believes wherever she goes in the uh, UK, people have always been painting. She thinks the whole of the UK is constantly uh, refreshed, constantly painted. Well, it's because people want to make things special for when the Queen visits. Of course, Nicodemus was probably a bit like that. If Nicodemus was coming to your house, you'd want to tidy up. You'd probably want to repaint because Nicodemus is in the building. What do we know about Nicodemus? Well, uh, firstly, I think we can say that uh, he was an older man. I think that is evident from verse 4, where, Jesus, uh, where Nicodemus says, How can a man be born when he is old? I'm told that the word, word there could be translated middle-aged, or it could be old. Um, and I guess Nicodemus was in that uh, middle age. He was, uh, we know he was one of the uh, Sanhedrin, he was one of the 70 uh, top dogs of Judaism. And uh, we also know a bit about that. We know that Paul was the youngest member, or Saul, before his name was changed, was the youngest member of the Sanhedrin, and he was in his 30s. So I think, think we can assume that Nicodemus was a man of some maturity, probably somewhere between 40 and 60 years of age. So an older man. I think we can also conclude about Nicodemus, not from this particular passage, but he appears in uh, chapter 7 of John's Gospel and chapter 19 of uh, uh, John's Gospel. And I think from those two instances, chapter 7, where he speaks to Jesus um, uh, against the chief priests and the other Pharisees, and in chapter 19, where he joins Joseph of Arimathea to go and ask Pilate for the body of Christ, I think we can conclude he is a courageous man. And uh, later on, I think I'll be giving you reasons to uh, conclude that Nicodemus is sincere and he is trustworthy. But I think the most important things for us to realise about Nicodemus is that uh, he is a religious man. He is a ruler. Um, verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He was one of the 70 top dogs. He was one of the Sanhedrin. He was a rule maker. And I think as a sincere man, um, he was a rule keeper too. He made the laws. He passed the uh, uh, guidelines. And he tried to adhere to them in his life. Um, there was always a problem between rules and principles. It's a, a major theme of mine. I seem to spend my life thinking about it. Principles are good. Uh, things are set there for our good. Um, it's good, God's great principle, one of the commandments, of course, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What's the principle? Well, we should be spending time. We should be cutting time out of our busy lives to make sure we spend time with God, worshipping him, praising him, reflecting on his goodness to us. It does us good. It's good for us. It's a great principle. One seventh of our time we should spend um, with God. It's a great principle. But then there's rules and guidelines to help us adhere to that principle. And the Pharisees made plenty of rules 
uh, about the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. What can you do on the Sabbath day? What can't you do on the Sabbath day? Uh, just one example, if you had a sore throat, uh, what can you do? Well, they came up with a law that said uh, you can make up the medicine the day before, dilute vinegar with water, and on the Sabbath day you can drink that medicine, as long as you've made it up the day before. But whatever you do, you cannot gargle, because gargling is work. So, you know, they're the sort of rules, they're the minutiae that Nicodemus would have been getting involved in. He would be in this maelstrom of guidelines and rules, trying to help people adhere to the principle, but the rules becoming a burden, the rules becoming something to be laughed at, and a contradiction. We see exactly the same, don't we, right now uh, with the pandemic. Uh, great good principle is uh, if we want to reduce the risk of transmission, then we should distance ourselves from each other. Uh, that's clear. That's very clear um, and very obvious. There's the principle. Uh, so we have rules. We have rules to help us because we seem unable to work it out for ourselves. So we have the rule of six. Why six, not seven? Uh, why is it okay to meet with people in a pub but not in your own house? And of course the rules and guidelines become a maelstrom. They become a big problem. They become a burden to us. And the people that uh, are making the rules to try and help us uh, become figures of fun. And also the finger points at them about being hypocritical. And the rules become a reason for us to judge one another and point the finger at one another. Um, and great problems and burdens. And Nicodemus was in the centre of that. He was a rule maker, a rule enforcer. He was a judge and a jury. He was a Pharisee. But he was a sincere Pharisee. And I think we can go on from that. As well as a ruler, I think he was a religious man. And I think he was sincere in his religion. He wanted to know God. He believed in God. And he wanted to know um, God's assurance. He wanted to be part of the kingdom of God. But Nicodemus is on this religious merry-go-round. This meeting took place during the Passover. Uh, is the first Passover of Jesus' ministry. And Nicodemus would be on this merry-go-round of religion, prayers and chants, smells and bells, um, sacrifice and clean up and start again, prayers and chants, smells and bells, sacrifice and clean up and start again, the merry-go-round of religion, never having the assurance, never having the peace, never having the joy, never knowing one enough is enough. That's the great problem of salvation by works. How can you ever be sure you've done enough? And God's this far-off ogre sitting on his throne waiting to point the finger at you because you've gargled on the Sabbath. That's the merry-go-round that Nicodemus was on. Nicodemus, this rich guy, he was rich. He was able to buy lots of uh, spices for Jesus to tend his body in uh, um, John chapter 19. This older guy, this ruler, the top dog, the guy that had made it, this religious guy, uh, this respectable and respected guy, Nicodemus. If you had a crowd of the whole of humanity and you looked at them, you think Nicodemus is the one that's made it. He's not an outcast, he's not an outsider, he's not a drug dealer, he's not immoral. He's respectable, righteous, he's on the top of the pyramid. He's this ruler, uh, one of the 70 top Jews in the country. Of all the people you think they're the guy that's made it. On the outside everything looked right. But inside, in his heart, Nicodemus was desperate. 
and he was screaming. And you're going to see what I mean by that in a minute or two. On the outside, everything looked right. On the inside, everything was wrong. Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the man. Secondly, the Messiah. Um, what do we learn about Jesus from this passage? Well, um, I think this passage, along with the whole of John's Gospel, is designed to show us Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah. If you turn with me to uh, John chapter 20, just turn over a few pages in your Bible, um, and John chapter 20 and verse 31, here's John, the Apostle John, uh, telling us why he wrote this book, why he wrote his Gospel. Verse 31, it says this, But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There we have it. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John sets out his gospel. It's slightly different to the other three. The other three are known as synoptic gospels. Um, they all seem to take their, some material from a common source. John's gospel stands alone in a sense. He's written this, the ageing apostle has written this, and I think he's probably met up with Nicodemus um, after the cross, after the resurrection, after uh, the time of Acts, and Nicodemus has told him this story. Uh, that's why the story of Nicodemus doesn't appear any, in any of the other Gospels. And John's great aim here in his Gospel is to show us Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to show us the divinity of this man Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who walked this earth. That starts off, the gospel starts off like that, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But the Word became flesh. He came and made his dwelling amongst us. Jesus is God incarnate. And John shows us many times in his gospels the mighty miracles, the I am statements, constantly reminding us that this man Jesus, this man walking the earth, this man going to the cross, is no other than God in flesh. Fully God and fully man. That is Jesus. And John is aiming to show us that in his gospel. And one particular aspect of his divine nature I think is really important to us this morning. And one thing I just want to make very clear to you, and that's his omniscience, omniscience, his all-knowing um, I listened to a number of sermons in preparation to preach this one. Um, one sermon that went on for an hour. I've got to say, I'll say that, went on for an hour. I think I'm pretty brief uh, compared to that. Um, it went on for an hour. And he spent 15 minutes, the preacher did, making this point, the omniscience of Christ. And he points out that at least, uh, there's at least one example in every chapter of God, John's Gospel where he demonstrates Christ's all-knowing, his omniscience. And uh, uh, just bear with me for a moment, I'll just show you in chapter 1, for example, when he meets up with uh, Nathaniel. Uh, he, Nathaniel says, how can you know me? Um, have a look at verse 48 of chapter 1. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Jesus couldn't have seen him physically because they weren't together. That's demonstrating his all-knowing. He knew about Nathaniel. He knew what he'd been doing uh, before they met. Um, in chapter 2, of course, at the end of chapter 2, which we'll come back to in a minute, um, verse 23, it says this, Now while he was in Jerusalem, that's Jesus, at the Passover feast, the first Passover of his ministry, 
Many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. In other words, he could see into their hearts. He knew that their profession of him was shallow. It wasn't true. He had this all-knowing ability to see the hearts of men. We're going to look at chapter 3 in a second, but I'll just uh, conclude my point uh, by telling you to look at um, John chapter 4, when uh, he sees the uh, uh, lady and he tells her everything she'd ever done as she goes to the people of her village and says, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. The omniscience of Christ. Jesus can look into the heart of people and know the truth and reality about them. There's no hiding from him. He knows the truth about us. And he knew the truth about Nicodemus. Now, just let's go back again to the end of John chapter 2, giving you the context, really, of John chapter 3. It's quite important, this. So let's just slow down for a moment and let's just focus on this. So have a look at verse 23 again. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Now in the original, it's a play on words here. Uh, people believed in him, verse 24, but Jesus did not believe in them. The way the NIV has translated that is Jesus would not entrust himself to them. He would not, not trust them with the truth and full confession of who he is and God's plan in him. For he knew their hearts, he knew their profession was shallow, he knew they would turn away from him tomorrow. He did not need to know man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in their heart or what was in man. And then at the start of chapter 3, remember there's no chapter breaks in the original, uh, there's this word now, it could be translated but, and he sets up Nicodemus in contrast to these men. In contrast to these men he couldn't trust, Nicodemus is a man he could trust. Hence me saying, I think Nicodemus is uh, trustworthy and sincere. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, or but there was a man of the Pharisee. Jesus couldn't entrust himself into the, to the people in verse 23 and 24 and 25 of chapter 2, but he could entrust himself to Nicodemus. That seems to be how this is set up. And hence, the meeting begins between Nicodemus and Jesus. So the man, Nicodemus, to all outside view, he seems to be a man that's got it all sorted, all worked out. But inside, he's screaming. He knows no peace, no joy, no assurance. And then there's the Messiah, Jesus, the omniscient one, the one who can look into the heart of people and know the truth about them. So the man, the Messiah, now thirdly the meeting. Just follow through with me, uh, John chapter 3. Um, let's have a quick wander through this great text. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Now some preachers, John Wesley uh, famously amongst them, uh, seem to think this is because Nicodemus was scared or afraid to come and meet Jesus. I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think Nicodemus is this courageous man. He's this uh, top dog of Judaism. I don't think Nicodemus is scared of anybody. Um, in fact, I think it's quite likely that uh, Nicodemus has been sent. If you read on in verse 2, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. We know. Who, who is the we? I suspect it's the Sanhedrin. 
at Jesus. This is the first year of his ministry. He's doing all these mighty miracles. He's causing a real stir in Jerusalem around the Passover. Um, the Sanhedrin wants to know about him. So they send Nicodemus on a fact-finding mission. He is to go and meet Jesus. Why at night? Why not during the day? Well, it's Passover. Nicodemus is going to be very busy. Jesus is very busy. It's all happening. Um, if you want a quiet conversation with somebody, then the evening is not a bad time to have that quiet conversation. Uh, we're not told anybody else is, is here. As I say, I think this is probably a private conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. Um, and Nicodemus probably told the Apostle John the story uh, many years later. It's at night because they want to spend quality time with one another. They want to chew over these things. They want to discuss these things. Nicodemus wants to spend time with Jesus. Secondly, I want you to notice there's something here which is really quite, uh, quite fabulous. I've never really seen this until uh, preparing for this time. Um, it's like a piece of music. You know how some pieces of music, they're kind of meandering along. It's all right. It's quite, quite tuneful. And then suddenly it takes off. Bang! It goes to another level. And it's wonderful. I can't tell you what happens in the uh, change of cards, chords, um, or whatever happens. But some, some pieces of music, they're kind of just meandering along. Oh, very pleasant. And then bang! It takes off. And this meeting here between Nicodemus and Jesus, it takes off in verse 3. And I want you to notice here that Jesus answers a question that's not been asked. I'll say that again. Jesus answers a question that's not been asked. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. A very definite statement. It's an answer to a question. But where's this come from? Where's this kingdom of God come from? He seems to be answering the question, how can I get to the kingdom of God? How can I inherit the kingdom of God? But Nicodemus never asked that question, did he? In fact, you could almost say in verse 3, Jesus has been a bit rude. Nicodemus has been very polite, verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform miraculous signs you are doing if God was not with him. That's a statement of fact. It's not a question. And then Jesus quite abruptly pops in. The, the, the melody changes and we hit a new note. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Can you see that? He's answering a question that's not been asked. Why? Why is he talking about the kingdom of God? Well, I think it's because he can see into Nicodemus's heart. He can see the question that Nicodemus wants to ask. He can, see, he can see that Nicodemus, on the outside, this respectable, righteous, rule-making Jew, but on the inside he's desperate. He's knowing no assurance. He's knowing no peace. He's knowing no joy. He doesn't know for sure that he's in the kingdom of God. God is far off. He's pointing the finger at him for not keeping rules. Enough is never enough for this God of Nicodemus' imagination. Jesus can see that pain. Jesus can feel that desperation. He can hear the question that Nicodemus is really asking. How can I be sure of the kingdom of God? So Jesus answers the question. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Here is the emphasis to be born again. Here is the necessity to be born again. And Nicodemus, of course, verse 4, is taken back. 
How can a man be born again when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Well, uh, clearly. Uh, and uh, he's surprised by this. And so Jesus goes on. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. You should not be surprised, Nicodemus, at my saying, you must be born again. Why shouldn't Nicodemus be surprised? Because Nicodemus knows the Old Testament. Jesus here is not coming up with something new. He might be expressing it, expressing it in a slightly new way. But this is God's plan. This is the fulfilment that's written there in Scripture. There's a great debate about what uh, is meant by you must be born of water and of the Spirit, verse 5. Some people think that water is a physical birth, you know, water's breaking. Um, I could tell you a story about the birth of uh, uh, Matthew and uh, uh, water's breaking, but uh, I won't. Um, so some people think that the water is a physical birth and the Spirit is a second birth. But um, I don't think that's quite right. Some people think water is baptism and spirit is the inward change. Um, I don't think that's quite right either. I think most commentators, um, and I, having read around it, I agree with them. This is a statement that comes directly from the Old Testament. It's there in many Old Testament ideas, the idea of the uh, second covenant. Uh, but if you come with me to Ezekiel in chapter uh, 36, I think it's most clearly there. Uh, similar words are used. So Ezekiel 36, uh, 24, it says this. For I will take you out of the nation, speaking about uh, Jerusalem, God's people, of course. Um, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. Listen, I will sprinkle with clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your, impuri all your Im impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. You see that? The water, the cleansing, the forgiveness, and then the outcome, a new heart, a new life, a restart, a, a reboot, a renewing in Christ. It's the second covenant. We have exactly the same idea in Jeremiah, repeated in Hebrews chapter 10, that uh, God in that day, after that time, after the time of Jesus, is going to put his law in our hearts, uh, in our minds, and write it on our hearts. Uh, is going to make us love the law and want to follow the law. It won't be a burden to us anymore. Uh, it's the same idea. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 3, to be born again. It's the new covenant to have the old heart of stone removed and a new heart installed. You must be born again. A rebirth, a renewing, a restart, a reboot. And uh, that's what he is, he is offering Nicodemus here. You want to know how he can be assured of the kingdom of God? Well, it's God's work. It's God's grace. It's uh, God's sovereignty. And we have in this passage this uh, great problem to us. God's sovereignty is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And we have it here. Um, he says in verse 8, have a look, verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is everyone born of the Spirit. How much did you have to do with your first birth? 
How much choice did you have about it? Answer, none. So it is with your second birth. It's a gift of God. It's where God's spirit blows. It's all of God. It's all of grace. It's all of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. We know that by grace we are saved. And it's all actuated by God's love. But then, <clears throat> verse 9, Nicodemus says, how can this be? Nicodemus, this guy who gives the rules, who applies the rules, who checks that people are adhering to the rules, this guy on the religious merry-go-round, how can this be? How can I be cleansed? How can I be forgiven of my sins? What's the mechanism he's asking of Jesus here? And uh, verse 10 and onwards, uh, Jesus says, well, there is a mystery here. This is a heavenly mystery, and we can't fully understand it. But I'll try and tell you of earthly things to help you understand it. It is of God's sovereignty. Though God's spirit blows where God's spirit will blow. But there is a responsibility for man. And he uses this illustration uh, from the Old Testament, from Exodus. Uh, Numbers 21, if you want to check up on it. Uh, snakes are biting the people in the wilderness, and they're dying. And uh, so Moses is told by God to put a snake on a staff, a bronze snake on a staff. And people who will look to the snake on the staff will live. And presumably if they didn't look, they wouldn't live. There's man's responsibility to respond to God's grace, to look to that snake and live. And Jesus then goes on to say exactly the same about his mission. You want to know how this can be, verse 9, Nicodemus? How is it possible for people to be forgiven? How is it possible for people to be born again and to be renewed and restarted and rebooted in their lives? Well, look no further than the, the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on that cross. Look, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Talking of his crucifixion, of course. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus hangs on the cross. Your responsibility, look to Jesus and trust in him. Know him as your saviour and your Lord. There is the wonder of this. Nicodemus, it's a mystery. God's sovereignty, the spirit blows where the spirit blows. You must be born again. Your responsibility, Nicodemus, look unto Jesus and be saved. Just as the people in the wilderness looked up to that bronze snake. And in exactly the same way as I tried to explain about the snake in the wilderness, those people who didn't look continue to die. It's not that they didn't look and then they died. They were dying already. And God offers them life if they would look. Exactly the same, Jesus goes on to say it in verse 17. Uh, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See that? We stand condemned already. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and Jesus is our rescuer. He's on a mission. He's going to be held upon the cross there, and if we look to him, we can know rebirth. We can be born again in his name. And of course, I can't walk past it. Uh, John 3:16. For God so loved the world, God so loved you and me, that uh, he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This undeserving love, this unending love, this unquenchable love, this love that's lavished upon us, 1 John um, chapter 3, how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us. That uh, power shower I've told you about many times, room 2, 
my favourite hotel in Hull. You turn it on, you hear the, the pump uh, grunge itself up and then suddenly out comes the water, a deluge. You know how some of these electric showers, you seem to be standing under them for hours before you get wet. Not this one. It pours the water on you. It lavishes the water on you. God is not restrained in his love. For God so loved you. His undeserved, unending, unquenchable love is lavished out on you. How do you know that? Ah, because, because Jesus died on the cross for you. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. You must be born again, Nicodemus. How can that be, asked Nicodemus? Well, it's going to be possible because of what Christ does on the cross for you. So, the man, the Messiah, the meeting, and finally, the meaning. What uh, is the application of this to you this morning? What is the meaning of these words? Well, it's my prayer that the uh, Spirit might be blowing in your direction this morning. And God, by his word, is putting particular things on your heart. And if that's so, don't let it go. Make a note of it. Get a pencil or a pen and write it down. Come back to it later. Reflect on it. Read around it. Uh, give me a call. I'd love to speak to you about it. If God's spoken to you uh, through his word this morning on any particular aspect, then give me a call. Let's talk about it. Speak to somebody else. Uh, let's uh, um, talk these things through. I pray that God, by his spirit, maybe blowing in your direction this morning. But just let me try and sum up the meaning of this. Four things, four things for you to uh, take away with you. Number one, Jesus is perfectly adapted to be your saviour. He's the saviour of the world. There's nothing unique or special or difficult about you. He can be, he longs to be your saviour. He longs to walk with you day by day. Number two, this Jesus knows you, his omniscience. He knows you inside out. He knows the very worst about you. He knows all about your thoughts and your attitudes and your actions. He knows them all. Just like that Samaritan woman, come meet a man who told me everything I'd ever done. He knows it all. He knows the very worst about you. And he also can look into your heart and know your most desperate needs, your deepest needs. Number three, despite this, despite knowing the very worst about you, despite that, he couldn't love you more. This unending, undeserved, overwhelming, unquenchable love, it's yours, despite the fact he knows the very worst about you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he knows your deepest need. And he can meet your deepest need. And number four, you must be born again. Oh, you can be born again. How can this be, asked Nicodemus. Well, look to the cross. Look to Jesus. Put your trust in him, knowing him as your Lord and Saviour. And you can be born again. You can be renewed, reborn rebooted. Um, I keep saying rebooted. I know I can't help thinking a great illustration here is a computer to have a new operating system installed or as Ezekiel talks about it, the old heart of stone taken out and a new heart installed. You see, Jesus accepts you. He accepts you as you are, but he loves you far too much to 
to leave you as you are. He doesn't want you to be anybody else other than you. But he wants you and he enables you to be a better version of you than you were before. We can be changed, transformed and renewed in him. The ongoing process of sanctification that's possible in Christ. You can be the best version of you it's possible to be. And that's what we're going to be when we're around the throne in heaven. He accepts you as you are. He loves you despite knowing the very worst about you. And he accepts you as you are. He loves you as you are. But he loves you far too much to leave you as you are. You can be renewed, transformed and changed in Christ. You must be born again. You can be because of the grace of God in your life. You can be born again. My prayer is that the Spirit is blowing in your direction this morning. I just want to close with a little story. And this little story is of a beautiful young lady. A lady that was born in 1930. She grew up through the time of the Depression. Her teenage years were spent uh, during the war. Uh, but after the war, she left home uh, and she went to train to become a nurse. She'd been brought up in a, a good household, going to church, and she believed in God. And she believed in a sort of universalistic sort of blanket love. God loved everybody, um, which of course is true to a certain extent. But while she was uh, away, uh, trained to be a nurse, she went to a service and someone preached on John chapter 3. And she heard this, you must be born again. And she says it really troubled her. For three days she was um, really twitched about this, really stressed out about this concept of being born again. Has she been born again? She must be born again. Has she? How does she know if she's been born again? You can see what's going on here. The spirit is blowing in her direction. Well, with uh, further conversations and meeting up with Christian friends, she came through and she uh, came to know Jesus Christ. She looked to him on the cross uh, and she was saved. She was converted and she became a Christian. I'm very pleased that she did because that, uh, that beautiful young lady is my mum. And of course, um, being brought up by a Christian mother has had a deep impact on my life, for which, for which I am extremely thankful to God. You must be born again. May God bless you. Amen.